0: You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom, Christian, in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's uh, start by reading our Bible together. Starting in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation or the apocalypse or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and heareth the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. I have visual aids tonight, too, that might help us along. Now, the first thing that I would like to show everyone, I think I maybe showed this once before, But, I'm going to show it again, if I can find it. Boom, there it is on my end. There are four basic views on end times theology or eschatology. These are technical terms, and one is called dispensational premillennialism. Another is historical premillennialism. Another is amillennialism. And another is post-millennialism. These are the four main viewpoints on the book of Revelation and the end times events. Why is this important? Well, whichever viewpoint you hold to is obviously going to shade how you read the book and how you study the book and what you look for when interpreting the book of Revelation. Now, I'm a very logical, evidence-driven person. I hold to a general rule that although the book of Revelation itself contains highly uh, symbolic and apocalyptic language, that we still should take it literal whenever possible. And that if this is clearly something that's symbology language or poetic language, then it's actually trying to communicate something concrete, something that isn't symbolic or something that isn't poetic. We should try our very best to figure out what the symbolic language is pointing to that's not a symbol. We do that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, by trying to let Scripture interpret itself whenever possible, and we try to do that by applying common sense logic to our understanding of Scripture. And I've always found that when it comes to the book of Revelation, it is not helpful to have a pan-trib or a, it'll all pan out or we are not expected to know everything or God is hiding a bunch of information from us mentality or viewpoint when we study it. Because if we study it that way, then we miss out on the very real blessing that the book of Revelation promises us. And let me make this clear. The book of Revelation is the only book in the whole entire Bible that has a specific promise attached to it. And that specific promise makes all the difference in the world when we understand what it is. And it speaks very concretely to whether or not we will be here during the tribulation. These four viewpoints, if you think about this just very logically, they are all radically different. Although some of the viewpoints hold some things in common or some things don't are not being held in common. I don't divide or say you're not my brother if you don't agree with one of these four viewpoints. Or if you disagree with a viewpoint that's different than mine. Because I'm not arrogant enough to say that I have everything completely figured out. But the success I've had in interpreting the book of Revelation is because I keep a very strict uh, guardrail upon my study. And I try to interpret it through one of these views. And when I do interpret it through one of these views, everything makes sense. Now, I'm going to be up front with you. I believe in the second viewpoint, which is the historical... Premillennial viewpoint that is the position that i'm going to be teaching this from if you don't agree with that viewpoint that's fine please keep an open heart and an open mind and study the scriptures with us to see if these things be so never take my word on anything test everything out by scripture i will try to do my very level best as we go through this chapter by chapter verse by verse to show you the scriptural reasoning why I believe something is what it is. I will try to show you logically why it is what it is. God gave us a logical brain and he expects us to use it logically. Which means that only one of these four viewpoints can technically be correct. Correct. Oh, that's a pretty bold statement to kick this off, but think about this logically. All right? There are four viewpoints, they are all different. They are the four majority viewpoints that people have held throughout the course of New Testament Christianity. Unless you have some private interpretation of the book of Revelation, which I don't believe scripturally there is a case for. it's going to fall into one of these four basic camps. And because they're all different, not all of them can be correct. Tonight, I'm going to try to show, using verses one through three, good scriptural reasons why I hold to the, the historic premillennial viewpoint and how that's going to shape our study. Now, if you're on a small phone or you can't see the chart, I'm just going to kind of run through it real quick. There's dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Here is where they agree. All four views believe that Jesus will physically and bodily Return. When he does return, though, there is a discrepancy of what will happen. The next question is Will there be a literal 1,000 year millennial reign of Christ? Meaning that Jesus will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem as the Messiah King, the son of David, and he will rule for an actual 1,000 year period. And will he return before or after that millennial kingdom? If you're into dispensational premillennialism, you believe that there will be a seven-year tribulation period and that Christ will return and reign for a thousand years. The historical premillennial position is, yes, after the tribulation, Christ does return and he reigns for a thousand years. The amillennial people believe that the millennium is not a thousand years long. It is highly symbolic language, and it just refers to the reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of the believers, that he's not going to rule from Jerusalem. He rules from our hearts. And postmillennialists believe that the millennium refers to a period of peace where the gospel is able to reach all people. The postmillennial and the amillennial are very similar in this respect. Do the rapture and the second coming of Christ occur at the same time? No. According to the dispensational premillennialists, they are separate events, either by seven years, which is the pre-tribulation rapture, or three and a half years, which is the mid-tribulation rapture. Historical premillennialism says that the rapture and the second coming of Christ occurs at the same time, or basically it occurs um, at the pre-wrath or the pouring out of the bull judgments or at the return of Christ, the post-tribulation viewpoint. Amillennial people and post-millennial people believe that the resurrection is the rapture, just like the historic premillennialists do and they believe it occurs when Jesus physically returns. So all three camps believe that the rapture and the resurrection of the church occurs when Christ comes back at his second coming. Will there be a great tribulation? The premillennialists say yes. The historical premillennialists will say yes. The amillennialists will say the tribulation is occurring throughout all of history that Christians are persecuted and wars and disasters will occur until Christ returns. So it's more of a figurative thing. And the post-millennialists will say the tribulation is either the first century Jewish-Roman war or the ongoing conflict between good and evil prior to the millennial kingdom. Basically, these people believe that Bible prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D. and that the book of Revelation itself was actually written before 70 A.D. Will Christians suffer during the tribulation? Well, if you're a uh, dispensational premillennialist, pre-millennial, uh, no, Christians will are raptured before the tribulation. If you're an historical premillennialist, you say, yes, Christians will go through the great tribulation. They will endure sufferings and persecutions. Well, let me do that. For the cause of Christ. Amillennialists and postmillennialists basically say, yes, Christians will suffer and endure persecution until Jesus returns, and persecution will increase in the end. So there's a lot of common ground between historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism in the fact that when Jesus returns, there's the resurrection and the rapture. Christians will have to suffer persecution. Christians will have to go through tribulation. When was this view most held? Well, the dispensational premillennial view became popular in 1860 and has increased ever since. The historical premillennial view that I hold to is the earliest view of the end times. It emerged in the first century and the early church fathers held to this view. The disciples of John and Paul And the apostles, they held to this view and wrote extensively about it. Amillennialism was popularized in 400 AD and post-premillennialism was popularized in 300 AD. So the newest player to the game is dispensational premillennialism, but just because they are new to the game doesn't mean that we throw them out completely. That's not why we would discard the premillennial uh, dispensationalists. We would actually try to discard them on something way more solid. So, like I said, all these four views are kind of different. Not all of them are correct. Either there's a rapture before the seven-year tribulation or midway through the seven-year tribulation, and the rapture and the resurrection is a distinct event from the coming of Jesus Christ, or it's not. Either the Antichrist is still a future thing, or he was Nero in 70 AD. Either the millennial kingdom is still a future event that will happen for a thousand years, or it's a spiritual event. None of those things can coincide with each other. Either the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD and everything wrapped up in that tiny package in that bow, and the 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 return of Jesus in the clouds is symbolic and the millennial kingdom is symbolic, or it's not. That's just logic. And I hope that you try to track with me on that logic. Now, like I said, the four views on the end times will impact your study of this prophetic. Book. So, the question that we ask ourselves tonight and for however many months we go through this is why do we read and why do we study the book of Revelation? Why is it important? What benefit does it have for us living in the end times? Well, if we read verse 3, it says, Blessed is he that readeth and heareth the words of this prophecy and keepeth the things which are written therein for that time is at hand. That's a pretty good reason to try to understand this book because there is a blessing attached to it if three very specific things are done. According to the text that I just read, a blessing is given to those who first Read this book, who hear the words of this prophecy, and those who keep those things written in the book. Those three things are very different, but they're very, very important. First, the blessing is given to those who read this book. The Greek word for read literally means to read out loud and by implication to understand. That's interesting because when the book of Revelation was first circulated amongst the churches, they would be read aloud in the house group settings. There was no printing press, there was no awesome Bible that we get to hold. They would hear the words of the prophecy, they would be read out loud, they would read it, or if they had access to the letter, they would read the letter, or maybe they would pass the letter around in their home groups and they would read it that way. But not only does that mean to read it out loud or to study it and read it, it means to understand the implications of what is being read. In Matthew 24:15, this word for read is used again. Jesus, Jesus, talking on the Olivet Discourse, he says, "Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains." A similar command is found in Mark thirteen fourteen. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. To read and understand means that when this event happens, the abomination of desolation, there is an appropriate response that accompanies it. I must flee in response. However, the reason why you're fleeing and physically fleeing is covered in the next two points. Because the second blessing is for those who hear. And that word means to listen and to understand, and this is the important part, to perceive the sense or value of what is being said. We have this idea in Matthew 7.24, right? Whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them or acts on them, I will liken unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. That word heareth is the same word. We understand this concept. And uh, all my mods, if the spammers keep coming through, just ban them for me. I don't have time to mess with that tonight. Um, thank you very much. To hear what Jesus is saying is to perceive the value of what is being said. The value of understanding and hearing and doing his words is the importance of the safety written about in Matthew 7.24. So let's go back to our Matthew 7.24 example, where Jesus says, Therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will, act un, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. When you understand the importance of the safety that will come because you built your life on the sayings of Jesus or a firm foundation and you perceive the value of it, you will build your life's foundation before the storm comes. People that that do not perceive the value and the wisdom of building their lives on the foundation of God's word will find out that they should have valued it when the storm comes and wrecks shop. Then they learn the value the hard way. When you hear something, you perceive its value and you value it. That value. Here's another example that maybe is a little bit more, um, easier to understand in modern language. Let's say I need two new tires for my car. I desperately need two new tires for my car because if I drive around another day on them, I'm going to be in trouble. But I only have money for one new tire. But then I hear that Goodyear Tire Store down the street is having a buy one, get one free sale. Hearing about the sale is only half of the meaning of that word here. I have to understand why I want to participate in the sale, the value of the sale, and why I want to get my tires and spend the money that I have on the tires instead of blowing that money on a night out with the boys. That's the only way I gather my money and actually go down to the store and buy the tires. In the previous example from Matthew and Mark, when we see Daniel's prophecy come to pass, we understand the value of why we should heed the warning Because we understand the value of life. We understand why we should flee. Because if we don't, we will stay and be captured, die, or be beheaded. So it's time to flee, but then we must actually flee and understand why we are fleeing, which brings us to the third condition of this blessing, which is to keep or to observe that blessing. Now, that word keep means to observe, obey, to watch over something or to guard over it, to hold fast to something and to not throw it away or remove it. Um, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, there's an even fuller meaning of this word. To obey the word means to guard over that word like a guard or a prison guard or to hold fast to something and to not throw it away or remove it prematurely. Metaphorically, to keep one in that state which one is, like a father's virgin daughter staying a virgin. That's what Thayer's Greek lexicon uses as the example. Now, if you're a father, you will not only guard your daughter from losing her virginity, you will set rules so that your daughter isn't hanging out with scumbag shenaniganizing punks who are trying to steal your daughter's virginity, but you will defend your daughter and her virginity. You will guard her and you will keep her sanctity holy. That word, keep, is used in Revelation 3.10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That word keep is used twice in this passage. It is the exact same word, for blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. Now, this is interesting. Because people who believe in a pre tribulation rapture, one of the first passages, once they get done with the Thessalonian passages, that they will show you in the book of Revelation that proves that the tribulation, the hour of temptation, which comes upon the whole world to try those that dwell upon the earth, we are kept from that hour, and Jesus raptures us. But that is not what that word means. And I can show you this logically, right? Because you have kept the word of my patience, meaning you have patiently kept my word, You have held fast to my word. You have not thrown my word away or have removed my word, but instead you have stood your ground and guarded my word. You have fought to defend the holiness of my word. You have guarded my word like you have guarded your daughter's virginity. I will guard you. I will keep you, I will protect you, I will defend you, and keep you holy during the hour of temptation that comes upon the earth to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now that's a very good reading of that passage. Because if you are saying that that second half of the passage is the rapture, then you have to read it like this, because you have raptured the word of my patience. You have removed the word of my patience. You have taken away the word of my patience. You have harpazoed the word of my patience. You have removed it. The very word keep means to not throw away or remove. Literally, by definition, in the Strong's Concordance. You can't say that it means not throw away, not remove, not not keep in the first part, but then means that it removes, throws away, or raptures in the second part. That's just not the case. By the way, this uh, word is used one more time. Uh, I can read it to you. It's in John 17. I have given them thy word. This is Jesus praying his last prayer to the Father for his disciples, that they might have their joy within them fulfilled. I have given them thy word, and the world hateth them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. And I pray that thou shouldest not take them out of the world, but that thou should keepest them from the evil. That word keep is the exact same word in this passage and the 310 passage. They are not of this world as I am not of this world. Sanctify them or make them holy through the truth. Thy word is truth. So what is he saying? Well, these guys are going to keep the word holy. These guys are going to sanctify and set aside the word. Just as I have sanctified myself through the truth, I am praying that you do not take them out of the world or remove them from the world, but instead you should guard them, keep them, protect them, defend them from the evil. Neither I pray these for these alone, but for them which shall also believe on me through their word. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that thou may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So this prayer is for every single believer that would believe upon Jesus through the words of the apostles and the words of Jesus. That word keep is a very, very specific word. So now, here comes the detective work. Right? We have determined that the blessing that is given to us in verse 3 is given to those who hear and study the book, understand the value and the importance of this book and the blessing that this book is about to give, and they obey what is written in the book of Revelation. And furthermore, they not only guard the words of this prophecy, they guard it, they defend it, they keep it safe, they keep it sacred, and they guard against it from being changed, removed, or corrupted. Only then will the specific blessing promised to us by Jesus can be found here and made known to us. And I'm going to tell you what the Bible says this promise is. And we read it already. Spoiler alert. I'll put it back up one more time. If you keep the word of his patience, he will keep you from the hour of temptation that shall come upon the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. If we hear, see the value, obey what's written, He is going to guard, protect, keep, and empower us to overcome in this hour. He will make a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, just as surely as he did during the plagues of Egypt for the children of Israel and the Egyptians. But furthermore, we can ascertain the specific blessing promised to us by Jesus by understanding the flip side of the coin, which is the curse given by Jesus in Revelation 22. We can read that starting at verse, I believe it's, uh, 16, where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you the things in these churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him who are, is a thirsty come, and let whosoever will let him take of the waters of life freely. Once again, these conditions are being met, right? Come. Take advantage of these things. Drink. These are actions and calls to response. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of the book, if any man shall add unto these things, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and out of the things which are written in this book. The curse for removing, as in keep, right? To not throw away or remove something, to guard something from being removed. And to keep or to bolster or to defend something is to not add. So what are, what are the curses? Well, the plagues being caught by the plagues and the natural disasters and the judgments of God, by being wrecked by them or killed by them. The other curse would be, if you start taking away from the words, you're going to find yourself out of the book of life. Now, like I said, the converse is true. If you hear, read, and keep, then you are protected from those plagues and those judgments. And when the wrath of God comes, you are protected. Why? Because your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And God protects you and he defends you and prepares you to overcome and face this prophetic hour from a position of victory, not a position of retreat. Let me say that again. The biggest blessing of studying and obeying and finding the value in the wisdom of this book is to prepare you to face this prophetic hour and prepare you for the things that are written in this book So that you know how to avoid the judgments of God, how to protect yourself, how to plan ahead, to prep for things that you may need to prep for, but most importantly, to have the faith and the assurance that when the devil comes, you can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb the word of the testimony, and not loving your life unto the death. Why? Because Satan cannot do anything to you except maybe chop your head off. But if you understand and value what is written in this book, you won't worry because your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You will have prepared to face this moment in prophetic history from a, a position of advancement instead of retreat and escape. That is the specific blessing. So, yeah, it matters what viewpoint you go into studying this book with because if you believe that you're somehow going to be raptured out ahead of time, then really, after chapter 4, nothing really applies to you until you get to chapter 20. We'll talk about that in a minute. Or if it's all figurative and symbolic, and the other two positions, which is like everything, there is no millennial reign of Christ, and everything is happened in 70 AD and everything like that, so we don't have to worry about facing the Antichrist, then you're not going to go into this prepared. Now do you see why it's so important to try to ascertain which one of these things is correct? A.W. Tozer once said, the more dangerous a doctrine is to the devil... The more he will seek to destroy it or distort it. And so there's two basic premises here: in the dispensational pre-trib and the classical premillennial early church father post-trib viewpoint. We'll talk about the amillennial and the postmillennial in a second. But the more dangerous a doctrine to the devil is, the more he will seek to distort it. What's the danger? Well, we know that in Revelation chapter 12, Satan comes down into the earth. He's fully exposed. He wants to attack and wear out the saints. He wants to destroy, but he is suddenly finding himself being fought against and overcome by the very saints that he is seeking to destroy. He does not want a remnant bride body of believers overcoming in that hour. He does not want you to apprehend or lay hold of the very blessings that the book of Revelation talks about. He does not want you prepared for that hour. Now let's look at the two viewpoints real quick. The first viewpoint says that the majority of the book of Revelation is not written for the church. It is written for those who have been left behind during the time of the tribulation, which would be the Jews and the backslidden Christians and the Gentiles that were not yet saved, but will now have to choose between God and the mark of the beast. Therefore, if we can make it to Revelation chapter 4, then we won't have to worry about enduring until the end, preparing for the plagues that talks about in the curse. We don't have to do any sort of physical prepping or spiritual prepping for the natural disasters of the tribulation. And most importantly, we won't have to ever face the Antichrist when he gives out the mark. That's the first viewpoint. The second viewpoint says that this book is for the believer of every generation, especially the believers at the end, and that the believers are God's servants, and therefore they're expected to faithfully serve him throughout the tribulation all the way into the end. So we must begin preparing right now to live through a time of plague and disaster, We must face the Antichrist one day if we don't die during the times of plague and disaster, and we must refuse the mark, and we must be willing to die if need be. So we're going to take Peter's advice very carefully. We are going to not let the cares of this world and the pride of life keep us from walking in sober holiness during this prophetic hour so that we can be prepared and not fall away. But the good news is if you do prepare and you do stay faithful, you will overcome. Now let me ask you a question. Which one of those two viewpoints is the greatest threat to the devil? And which one of these two viewpoints has the greatest trap to okey-doke believers in it? That is why I don't hold to the first viewpoint, the pre-millennial dispensational viewpoint of the Bible. That is why we are going to study the Bible from one of the other three viewpoints. So now we have looked at why we must study the book and obey what is written in it and what the value of the book is. We need to answer a couple more questions before we move on to next week's study, which will start in verse 4. And these aren't really deep theological questions. These are standard questions that every student who wishes to study a book of the Bible, regardless of what book of the Bible it is, must always ask in the very beginning of their study. Questions such as, when was the book written? Right, What is the central message of the book? And who is the book written to? Those three questions. Must answer them. Luckily, once again, the answers are in the text. The first thing that we have to understand is when the book was written. Because when we understand when the book was written, right that will make us choose rather sharply between the historical premillennial view and the view that the amillennialists and the postmillennialists take that the thousand-year reign of Christ is just figurative, it's not real, and that it was all fulfilled between 70 AD or before 70 AD, that the book of Revelation was already fulfilled at that point and that the person who was the Antichrist was most likely Nero, and it was written during the time of Nero. And so now the the message of the book of Revelation was only specifically written to those people alive at the time of Nero, but then there's some greater things we can take from it, some life lessons we can learn. Once again, just as those two viewpoints that A.W. Tozer talked about are completely different from each other, this idea of the book of Revelation being fulfilled in AD 70 and the Antichrist had already been on the scene by AD 80, 90 is either right or the book of Revelation was written later and the early church fathers talked about a literal Antichrist coming later. When we determine what that is, then we can safely try to plot our course as to what the book of Revelation truly means and then how we can understand it. So, when was the book of Revelation written? There's two competing ideas on this. One is the Domitianic date and one is the Neuronic date. Basically meaning that the book of Revelation was written during the reign of Domitian, around AD 95, or it was written during the dates and the reigns of Nero, which would place it at about AD 65, and then it was fulfilled by AD 70, and then everything else after that is highly symbolic. Well, the writing of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ has always traditionally been assigned to around AD 81 to AD 96. The testimony of the church fathers is that the revelation of Jesus Christ was written by John during the reign of Domitian. If that is true, then that would lead us to the very reasonable conclusion that many of the events prophesied in the book of Revelation must still occur because they would have occurred later than the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. There is also direct reference to John's banishment under Domitian. The earliest of these is that of Iranius. He was the Bishop of Lyons in Gaul. Now, I'm going to read some quotes from you, but if you look at the graphic on the screen, you're going to see that pretty much every legitimate church father who can trace their lineage back to the original tree of discipleship wrote or commented that John wrote his book during the reign of Domitian. And you see when the commentaries come in, the earliest is Irenaeus, then there's Victorinus, Assebius, Jerome, Sulcurius, Primerius, Isidore of Seville, Osirius, Andridius, and then the book of Acts. You see this consistent witness going all the way from 180 to 650. I'll come back to this slide in a minute. But Let's see what Irenaeus says about this. He writes, we will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist, for it were necessary that his name should be distinctively reeled in this present time. It would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. So basically he's saying the Antichrist hasn't come yet. There's no need to speculate who the Antichrist is because we won't know that till he comes. So it doesn't do us any good to name the name of the Antichrist ahead of time. If the Holy Spirit would have wanted that, he could have told John the actual name of the Antichrist ahead of time, and we would have known. Maybe we should uh, practice that before we call every single president or every Go leader or every single pope the Antichrist, but that's a whole other thing. He said, For it was seen that not so very long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of Domitian's reign. So he puts the writing of John's Apocalypse during the end of Domitian, the emperor's reign. If you read the Barnes notes on the New Testament, it will read, it will be recollected that he, Irenaeus, was a disciple of Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, who was the direct disciple of the apostle John. He had therefore every opportunity of obtaining the correct information and doubtless ex." Expressions of the common sentiment of his age on the subject. His character is unexceptionable. He has no inducement to bear any false or perverted testimony in the case. His testimony is plain and positive that the book was written near the close of the reign of Domitian, and the testimony that he gives should be recorded as decisive unless there is a legitimate reason it could be set aside. His language in regard to the book of Revelation is it was seen that not such a long time ago, but almost in our age, at the end of the reign of Domitian. The early church historian Eusebius, vicious of Caesarea in Palestine, who was known as the father of church history, said, it is said that this persecution of the apostle and the evangelist John, who was still alive, was condemned to dwell on the island of Patmos, In consequence of his testimony to the divine word, Irenaeus, in the fifth book of his work against heresies, where he discusses the name of the Antichrist, which is given to the apocalypse of John, speaks as follows concerning it as if it were a necessity that this was written during the reign of Domitian. Victorinus says, when John said these things, he was on the island of Patmos, condemned to the labor of the mines by Caesar Domitian. Therefore, he saw the apocalypse. Now, basically, I could keep quoting, and I have all the quotes, but I know that we're running kind of short on time here. I could quote each one of these people, and they will confirm to you time and time and time again that the gospel that John or this uh, not gospel. This letter that John wrote was written because the Emperor Domitian uh, put him on the island of Patmos, and that's where he wrote it. And I'm assuming that Irenaeus would know, because Irenaeus, as the the dictionary that we read uh, said was the disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was also the direct disciple of John, who was the direct disciple of Jesus. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, is the one who the letter to... Um, the angel at the Church of Smyrna or the messenger or the leader of the Church of Smyrna or the pastor or the bishop of the Church of Smyrna was written to. And John was writing this letter basically as a stenographer. He was writing down what Jesus was telling him word for word. And then John's disciple, Polycarp, gets this letter written from Jesus basically saying how he's one of the very few churches in Asia Minor that has not betrayed the gospel, whose theology is on lockdown. Basically, Jesus has taken time to stop what he's doing and give Polycarp a glowing letter of recommendation. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were the disciple of Polycarp, which Irenaeus was, and your pastor got an honest-to-God letter from Jesus saying how your doctrine was on point and that he was pleased with you, that is something super unique. Do you think you would remember who was the president or the emperor when such a letter was given? Of course you would. Like when you have a concussion, one of the first things they ask you is, who is the president? Because that will tell you if your memory is serving you correctly. This is an historic event. Of course, Arrhenius is going to remember when his pastor got a letter from Jesus. And he's going to remember who was the president at the time, which means that the book of Revelation couldn't have been written before AD 70. It had to have been written somewhere between AD 81 and eighty ninety six. Now you say, "BDK, what about this other viewpoint? What about this neuronic date of AD95 or 65? Where did that come from? How come you're not giving that person the ample time? Well, OK, where did this idea come from? That maybe it came under the reign of Nero, the very first person to suggest a reinterpretation of Irenaeus' comment about the date of Revelation was Johann Jacob Westein. And he did this in 1752. That was a long way away from Irenaeus. He ain't going to know who was in charge, personally, like Irenaeus did. He believed the book was not written in 95, but in 65, and he had an agenda. He was a Swiss New Testament theologian, and he was a deacon of rank at the parish of St. Leonard's, which was a large Swiss church. Now, he was dismissed and excommunicated out of his position when he began using the Greek translations as a textual criticism of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, Later on, he slips into full sacanercyism, which is a fancy word of saying that you believe in a heresy that A, denies the Trinity, B, denies the preexistence of Christ, thus denying his eternal godhood, and you also deny the propitiation, which means that Jesus made full atonement for our sins as both God and man. Then he got excommunicated for this. This is the first dude who comes up with this theory. Where did he get this idea that it was Nero's reign? Well, he got it from a superscription. A superscription is something that's written on the outside of the surface of something, added at a later date. So if a superscription would be this, this Bible, and then me writing my name 10 years after I get it on the outside or engraving it on the outside of the Bible. Basically, this Syriac inscription in 508 and this Syriactic inscription found in 1616 was a superscription that was found on the outside of a scroll that was originally written about the book of Revelation after the fact of the writing of that scroll. And then that superscription said, that John was exiled by Nero. Yeah, I'm not going to trust that. I'm not going to trust that a dude that got kicked out of a church for heresy knows anything about this situation. I'm going to trust the dude who can trace his teachings and his discipleship directly back to Polycarp, who can trace it directly back to John, who can trace it directly back to Jesus, and his pastor got the letter from Jesus talking about how he was perfect in his doctrine. One of the few churches that got any didn't get a rebuke. These are the four views. Historically and logically, I can't believe the last two. Because there is no good evidence in quantity that would completely overturn the eyewitness testimony of Polycarp, Irenaeus, and everyone beneath him. I won't go for the dispensational premillennialism because like this amillennial, postmillennial sort of thing, it's a newcomer to the game, yes, but it contradicts the clear teachings of Scripture and robs us of the very point and blessing that the Scripture has. The next question that we must ask ourselves is this. What is the central message of this book? If we do not understand the central message of this book, we will not understand what this book is trying to overall communicate to us and we'll get all messed up. We'll start thinking that the book is about the reign of the Antichrist or about the rapture or when the rapture is. We'll start thinking that the book of the Antichrist is about the tribulation or the persecution. We'll think it's about the mark of the beast. We'll think it's about the seven years. We'll think it's about everything. Everything except the central focus of the story and what that should be. And when we understand what the central focus of that story should be, then every single thing will make sense as we interpret it. What is the central focus of this book? Well, we read it. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is the kinsman redeemer and the returning king who will reign on David's throne. Everyone has probably heard the saying, I believe the whole Bible. I believe the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. I do too. What's that story? Basically, God created the earth as we know it, and he gives dominion to man over it God owns the earth he alone owns the earth the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the Bible says but mankind is given the right to basically be the landlords of earth to have control over the kingdoms of men God created this world and put mankind in front in it to have a family he wants unbroken fellowship with his children and mankind forever but Satan tricks mankind or Adam and Eve into following him instead. And then that legal landlordship gets transferred to Satan. Satan becomes Earth's legal landlord. We know this because Jesus is offered that kingdoms of this world from Satan if he would worship him. He was basically offering Jesus something that he did not have, which was. The ownership of the earth. All he had was the landlordship of the earth or the power over the earth, which is basically the kingdoms of men or the kingdoms of this world. Jesus dies and redeems man from sin but also becomes the earth's very kinsman redeemer because he is fully God, but he's also fully a son of Adam or mankind, so he legally can redeem the earth. And we're going to talk all about this when we get into the seven seals and the scroll and all that, but basically the scroll with seven seals is a deed to planet earth And it's sealed by God who owns the land because the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Satan, even though he offered Jesus the kingdoms of the earth, couldn't offer him what was inside of that scroll because even Satan doesn't have access to what was inside of that scroll. When we get to this passage, all of heaven is going to be like weeping and mourning because they're looking for someone who can actually open these seals, open the scroll and stand and redeem that which is inside. But no man on earth can find it, no being on earth can do it, but Yeshua can, because He is God and man, and each seal is opened, and Jesus takes back the kingdoms of this world, seal by seal, bit by bit, year by year, until finally that seventh trumpet sounds And that angelic proclamation is made that the kingdoms of this world that Satan offered Jesus have now legally become the kingdoms of God and the kingdoms of our Christ. And Jesus will rule and reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then he will give the land a Sabbath Jubilee rest. And after that final Sabbath seven years, which is the final years of the tribulation, And according to the Levitical law, that land will rest. And that will be that thousand-year reign. At the end of that thousand-year reign, Jesus is going to return that land back to its rightful owner, who is Yahweh, or Father God. And then the earth will be fully healed, and mankind, whose names are found in the book of life, will be the family of God again, earth will be eaten again, and the tree of life will be available again. That is the theme of this book. The theme of this book is not the reign of the Antichrist, it's not the tribulation, it's not the what's going on in the tribulation or who is left behind in the tribulation, or the Jewish people versus the Gentile church. The theme is not the mark of the beast, the theme is Yeshua, the kinsman redeemer, who is the returning king, and he will rule on David's throne and finish the story that began in the book of Genesis. And if you study the book of Revelation from that viewpoint, you will find amazing power, protection, and provision in it because the mission will become so clear. Finally, who was the book of Revelation written to? Well, we see in Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, this very key saying. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must come shortly to pass. Who was the book of Revelation written to? The servants of God. The servants of God. Now, people will say, hey... I'm a dispensationalist, pre-trib raptured dude because the church isn't mentioned after chapter 4. By name, that word church isn't used. Therefore, we've been raptured out of here. The book of Revelation is written for the Jewish people during the times of Jacob's trouble. Only the first couple chapters apply to the church because the church isn't found or mentioned by name. Well, first of all, who is the book of Revelation written to? The servants of God. Who are the servants of God? We are the servants of God if we are faithfully serving the Messiah. This idea that the book of Revelation, past chapter 4, doesn't apply to the church, the blessings don't apply to the church, or the warnings don't apply to the church, because the word church isn't specifically used by name, is complete balderdash. And let me give you an example of this horrendously bad reasoning here. Because you can't have it both ways. Either it is or it isn't. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, But as it was written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us by God. And every person in the four viewpoints will say amen. That is for the church. That is for the saints of God. That is a promise we can all lay hold of regardless of our rapture timing. Really? Really? How can we claim those promises for the church if the church isn't mentioned specifically by name or word church isn't used once in that whole entire chapter? Obviously, if the word church isn't used, then the church can't claim this, right? Because the church isn't mentioned by name. How do we know that the church can claim that promise if the church isn't mentioned by name? Well... We read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothius, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them which are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that within every place, that call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here's an interesting idea. If the book is written to the saints and the church, then the church can claim the contents of that whole entire thing of uh, Corinthians without having to be mentioned by name even once after the first introduction. Right? More specifically, this is written to the servants of Christ. Now, are you a faithful servant of Christ? Go ahead and read the Olivet Discourse, that sermon Jesus preaches about the end times in Matthew 24 and 25. and You'll see when he gets to the parable portion of all of this, it's all about servants that are always present until the end, servants that... Even if the Lord delays his coming, are still found waiting and watching and being faithful servants. These servants or virgins, have oil in their lamps. These servants are working until the end, till the king returns to give him his investment back. These servants are going forth, and they're treating the poor and the naked and the blind and the people in prison like they would treat Jesus. They are remaining faithful to the very end. They are faithful servants." That's who this is written to. As we read through the book of Revelation, we are going to see that Jesus outranks the Antichrist and the saints of God are going to overcome the devil and that they are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So why does God need to remove his servants? Does a governor or a king remove his servants if a lower mayor or prince moves in next door that has a different uh, ruling style or a different political viewpoint? No, the servants always work. They're not going to remove or rescue the servants if the people below them outrank them. No, the servants are being paid to do a job faithfully. Why should that give us comfort? Well, because it's not our job to worry about who's protecting us. It's our job to be faithful, and it's the master's job to protect, to guard, to defend, and to keep his servants safe while they are working and remaining faithful. We don't need a rapture, a pre-trib rapture. We just need to hear, read, and keep the things that are written in this book. We just need to be faithful servants. We just need to keep working until the end, and we need to trust that it is the master's job to keep, to guard, protect, and defend us while we work. The real question is this, though, and this is the question that we will be asking ourselves many times as we go through the book of Revelation. Are we faithfully working for Him as God goes about establishing His kingdom and making the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our God in Christ? Or are we faithfully working for us as we pursue our kingdoms, our money, our luxury? Are we serving ourselves by trying to keep up with our neighbors and keep up with the Joneses? Or are we diligently trying to win our neighbors to Christ? This is the revelation of King Jesus. And this is the revelation of how he will keep his servants. And this is the revelation about how Jesus will redeem this world. And how this old world will fade away and ultimately a new world will come. This is about a choice that we make. We can have a world that will fade away and burn. Or we can have Jesus. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. And I hope you can say with all surety of your heart, That no matter what happens, no matter, even if you find yourself in the middle of tribulation, you have prepared because this world, it can burn. And you can die. And everything can fade away. But in the end, if you have Jesus, and you have everything, you will ever, ever need